The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Gaining Confidence in Predicting and Assessing Response to Cancer Immunotherapies, Practical Strategies for Biomarker Testing and Pathologic Response Assessment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GNU 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning. Thank you to everyone for joining us in person and online this morning. I'm excited to get us started, and we're going to be talking about gaining confidence in predicting and assessing response to cancer immunotherapies. My name is Trisha Cottrell, and I'm delighted to be sharing the stage with Lynette Scholl today. So I'm going to start with a brief introduction and background. Um, we're going to talk about two topics today. One is biomarkers and one is pathologic response. And this first slide just highlights some of the challenges with biomarkers. So surveys focusing on either pdl one testing or tumor mutational burden highlight some of the gaps in knowledge as well as some of the inconsistencies in clinical practice. And I think the take-home message is really that this field is evolving very quickly. And in order to provide the best possible care for patients, it's important that we as pathologists stay up to date on the latest recommendations and really unify in a standardized, high-quality practice. Uh, the second topic is pathologic response assessment following neoadjuvant immunotherapy. This is a really exciting space. Um, with the advent of immune-targeting therapies, we're seeing a real explosion of neoadjuvant um, indications, and I, I think this is an exciting area that I, that I look forward to discussing more in the second half of the talk. So today's seminar, we're going to mostly focus on how to appropriately use biomarker testing for uh, predicting response to immunotherapy in solid tumors, and then we'll talk about assessing pathologic response following a pre-surgical uh, treatment. To set the stage, I'd just like to, you know, highlight for everyone that we all know that immune checkpoints are changing everything about cancer care, and the focus of a lot of this are T-cells and the immunoregulatory molecules that they express, including activating and inhibiting receptors. We're all familiar with PD-1 and CTLA-4, and we know that there are many new uh, immune checkpoint molecules that are being tested in clinical trials, including LAG-3 and others. So a lot of exciting advances are being made and a lot of um, downstream consequences in terms of biomarker testing and pathologic response assessment. There are numerous phenotypic and genomic biomarkers that have been researched in the context of immunotherapy, including three that have been FDA approved, including PDL1 immunohistochemistry, uh, MSI testing, and tumor mutational burden. And so, with that, I will hand things over to Dr. Scholl to talk about biomarkers. Thank you so much, Tricia, and uh, thank you to Peerview and our sponsors. And um, I'm going to be addressing the uh, predictive biomarkers that are um, the F in the FDA-approved category. And um, since it, this is, we have a lot of information to pack into um, a really very short uh, period of time, I would suggest that you download and view the um, slide deck. There's a complete slide, slide deck that has a lot of background information that we simply don't have the time to cover today. So please take a look at that after the session is over. Okay, so focus on PDL one to start. So um, here's a, kind of a laundry list of things to keep in mind as either you're implementing one of these assays or you're thinking about scoring PDL1, use of a validated IHC assay and, uh, and proper controls, um, 
Talking about validation of these assays is very much outside the scope of this session, but um, there's going to be upcoming guidance both uh, from, from the CAP with regard to pdl one testing specifically, as well as IHC testing. And so we're in, I'll talk a bit about more about those briefly, but those are guidelines we're anticipating will be coming out shortly, so keep an eye out for those. Um, in terms of proper controls, um, in addition to tissues that are known to overexpress PDL1, including tonsil and placenta, there are now commercially available cell lines that have carefully titrated PDL1 expression uh, available that you can use for um, assessing PDL1 expression at different levels. Um, samples should, of course, meet pre-analytical requirements. Um, and again, this gets back to uh, understanding the basics of immunohistochemistry. Um, and I think in particular for PDL1, there's a lot of question around how old of a sample should I be testing? Um, you know, is, is it, you know, what kind of fixation is acceptable, et cetera? The age, is, the age of the specimens in particular have been evaluated in a number of, in a number of studies. Uh, the, the, the fresher, the better. And obviously, we want, uh, we want tumors that are proximate to the disease that's being treated as opposed to, um, as opposed to really archival tissue that may or may not actually represent the biology of, of the tumor that's being treated uh, right now. So I would say, you know, you, you, you want to use your best available specimen, but keep in mind that um, if you're really looking at very archival specimens, it may be time to advise the clinicians to be seeking new biopsies. Um, it's important to consider uh, tumor and assay-specific differences. As we know, there's different, uh, different types of scoring approaches, and there's different assays for different uh, tumor indications. Again, there's a lot of information to unpack there that is in the, the, the additional slide deck that's accessible after this talk. Uh, PDL1 may be detected either in tumor or in stromal cells, and your, your, uh, your, or in both, and your determination about which of those compartments to score is going to be based on the, the tumor type indication. Um, I would just emphasize that uh, at least 100 tumor cells are uh, recommended or really required for most of the assays. Um, there are the situation where you maybe have 40 tumor cells and they're all screamingly positive for PDL1. I don't say, sorry, I can't score it. In that scenario, I'll usually tell the clinician what I'm seeing and, and introduce the caveat that it's likely to be highly positive, but I have a limited number of tumor cells and they would be encouraged to repeat testing. Um, and membranous staining is what we're looking for in tumor cells. And um, it can be incomplete, so uh, we, we really don't pay attention to whether it's circumferential or not. Any degree of membranous staining in tumor cells is considered a positive tumor cell. In immune cells, we more commonly cytoplasmic expression. The intensity of staining is not considered in the scoring approach. Uh, so really, even very faint intensity um, can be included in your, uh, in your tumor proportion score or your um, immune, immune scores. Um, and then I think this is an important issue, and we'll talk a bit more about this in a moment, but excluding areas of dysplasia, non-invasive disease, necrosis, and non-tumor tissue is obviously critical, particularly when you're, you're looking at tumor proportion scores uh, explicitly. And it's important to keep in mind that pdl one staining can be very heterogeneous, and you really need to be integrating across the entire area that you're uh, analyzing. So just a couple of examples. Um, here's a really beautiful example of one of the classic pitfalls in lung cancer pdl one scoring. We can see very strong membranous crisp staining in the tumor compartment in the top left. And then you can see there's also some fairly robust membranous staining in um, the compartment in the, in the bottom, uh, in the bottom right. Um, and of course, that's our alveolar macrophages. These 
pretty consistently express PDL1. And I think this is one of the sort of beginner's pitfalls that we see when we're introducing this, uh, this staining, this testing and analysis to people who haven't seen it before, to our trainees. Uh, we tend to see overcalling of, of PDL1 in lung cancer because of scoring in this compartment. Those alveolar macrophages should be excluded from, from any scoring. Um, just a higher power view of, of making that distinction between the tumor cell compartment, which you can see in this case is completely negative, versus the macrophages, which, whose morphology is really evident at higher power. Uh, necrosis as well can display a chromogenic signal, so it's important to exclude areas of necrosis from your scoring. Uh, I, I would say that this comes in as a pitfall when you just sort of glance at a core biopsy and it looks really brown. You're like, oh, look, it's a 100% tumor proportion score, say, in a lung cancer specimen. And then you zoom in and you realize it's mostly necrotic. So that low power, um, low power first um, guesstimate of PDL1 score can be quite uh, misleading in the necrotic sample. So take a quick, uh, very careful look at these. We want to evaluate only in the invasive component. This particular example that is shown is of, of a breast cancer, uh, so we want to be in, uh, evaluating the, um, the, the expression in the vicinity of the tumor, of the invasive tumor, not in DCIS, as an example in breast cancer. In um, lung cancer examples, um, I, I think the biggest pitfall that I tend to struggle with are the um, small endobronchial biopsies of patients who have invasive squamous cell carcinomas and actually distinguishing between the clear in situ component Pagetoid spread of cancer along the airways, um, invasive carcinoma, it can get very tricky. We'll often see differential expression in the in situ and the invasive components in things like squamous cell carcinoma, so that could be an additional indicator to help you uh, ensure that you're scoring the right comp uh, compartment. In, the, in lung adenocarcinomas, I think things can get very tricky. Uh, for those of you who look at lung biopsies, no, it's not uncommon for you to have, say, a primary lung biopsy that captures a large component of lipidic growth. Uh, there may be a small invasive component. The patient may already have advanced disease, and this is um, uh, the only biopsy that you have to assess their PDL1 status on. We know that the lipidic component of uh, adenocarcinomas tends to run lower than what we see in the invasive component. So this is another scenario where you may only have a single specimen to deal with. It may not be fully representative of the invasive biology of the tumor, and that's an important caveat to point out as you're reporting out those, those types of um, those samples. PDL1 staining, as everything that we've just noted, um, highlights can be quite heterogeneous. Um, and so, again, integrating across the entirety of the slide that you're examining is really critical. So we have some um, CAP guidelines forthcoming. Um, I'm, what I'm showing you here are actually draft recommendation statements from 2021 that went out for public comments and were generally uh, widely accepted in public comments. These, um, uh, these recommendations should be seeing the light of day in terms of formal publication, we're hoping later this year. Uh, we actually had to undergo a couple of literature refreshes, given how quickly the field has moved in this, uh, in this space. Um, there's not really a ton of big surprises here. I think we uh, were recommending that people use validated IHC assays. Um, in the context of lung cancer, it's really critical to be interpreting PDL1 expression in the context of other genomic biomarkers because we recognize that patients who are, say, EGFR mutated or ALK rearranged or ROS rearranged tend not to uh, respond to immune checkpoint therapy, even if they have high PDL1 expression levels. PDL1 expression testing should be performed on the best available specimen. We've talked about this a bit already. And to that point, uh, in terms of ensuring adequate fixation, storage, et cetera, these are um, uh, pre-analytic variables that will be covered in more detail by the CAP IHC uh, testing guidelines, which is also due to be published in the near future. 
Um, there's a general recommendation that if you have access to some of the companion diagnostic assays to run in your laboratory, um, they should be used, and they should be used as intended for their given, um, uh, given particular disease indication. Those laboratories that do choose to use laboratory-developed tests um, uh, for PDL one should validate them according to the requirements of their accrediting body. We don't go into a lot of detail about uh, how this validation should actually occur, deferring to the IHC committee for that. Um, we recommend use of percent expression score rather than a binary score for PDL one. Um, so in, in our practice, we'll typically try to re report the expression level out in um, uh, in deciles. Uh, I think being able to provide, rather than a positive or negative or a high or a low score, that actual percent expression score can be informative even in the, the highly expressed um, uh, tumors. There's uh, quite, quite a number of papers now demonstrating that PDL1 expression levels actually predict differential response. If you're at 50% expression, you don't see nearly as robust a response to immunotherapy as if you're at 90 plus expression. So there's some information, information to be gleaned from more specific percent expression scores. And finally, we also comment on the use of TMB and that it should not be used as a biomarker, on, as a standalone biomarker to select patients for, with advanced non-small cell lung cancer for immune checkpoint blockade based on relatively insufficient evidence in this population, which we'll talk about briefly. Okay, we're gonna move on to the next topic, and that is a focus on MSI and MMR. Here is uh, a, a, a quick um, review of the frequency of MSI high um, status uh, in a pan-cancer analysis. Um, and so, you know, this, this really highlights one of the, one of the, the, the issues that we've, I think, grappled with um, as a field since there was uh, an, an, an FDA pan-cancer approval for the use of MSI or MMR for um, the use of pembrolizumab in, uh, in patients uh, with mismatch repair deficiency uh, uh, tumors. And we recognize now that you, there's a, at least a low-level uh, frequency of mismatch repair deficiency in the majority of, of, uh, of solid tumors, um, both in uh, adults and pediatric patients. Um, but it, it probably isn't frequent enough to warrant reflexive testing across the entire population of, of cancer patients. Um, and so this type of, of analysis here that really gives you a sense of the frequency of mismatch repair deficiency um, in individual tumor types helps to kind of highlight those, those areas where it's, it's probably prudent to be thinking about performing reflexive testing uh, for um, uh, MMR, specifically for immunotherapy treatment uh, decisions. So that's our endometrial cancers, our colon cancers, our gastric cancers, and you could probably argue your rectal cancers are pretty easy to kind of bin in with your colon cancers when you're thinking about employing a reflex testing strategy. For many of us, we've been doing reflexive testing for endometrial cancers and colon cancers for many years, largely for Lynch syndrome screening. Again, this is largely thinking about it in the context of immunotherapy, but um, here, here's probably the highest yield uh, space to be thinking about implementing a particular mismatch repair um, IHC-based strategy in your surgical pathology practice. So there are a couple of ways we can test for mismatch repair deficiency, and I, I won't belabor this. I think probably the audience is quite familiar with these. Uh, mismatch repair deficiency IHC is a very reliable strategy. It's inexpensive. It's relatively easy to interpret. 
The sensitivity is estimated to be around 85% for detection of mismatch repair deficiency. And so where do the false negatives come from? Uh, well, one, one is really a biological false negative, if you will. It's the situation where you can have a mutation that's actually abrogating the protein function, but doesn't, uh, doesn't prevent the epitope from being expressed. So we do see these situations where you see a discrepancy, a true discrepancy between protein expression and function. That's one scenario. I think the other scenario is largely technical or, or artifactual, where it's a small, poorly preserved biopsy discriminating between uh, tumor and stromal tissue can be, can be challenging, and you can, you can miss, um, miss it either as a false negative or, or as a false positive. Um, MSI-PCR is maybe not as widely available as mismatch repair um, IHC, but it is a pretty commonly offered uh, lab test in, uh, in many uh, molecular diagnostics laboratories. It's quite standardized at this point. There are commercial assays, uh, off-the-shelf assays that many laboratories use. Ideally, you have both a tumor sample and uh, a non-tumor sample. So that may be normal tissue that's adjacent to lesion. That may be a blood sample. Um, this can be logistically challenging. So as, a, as a, a lab that performs this type of testing, it's not infrequent that we will, we will receive MSI-PCR request on, say, a small diagnostic biopsy from a patient with colorectal cancer. They're not going to be seen in the clinic for another three weeks, and they want to use the MSI-PCR information to counsel them on their next visit. So your access to, to actually getting um, a norm, normal specimen from that, that patient may be, may be quite, um, quite limited. Um, so we, you can interpret the MSI-PCR results on tumor only, and that's kind of a separate conversation entirely. Um, it's possible, it's just not as uh, optimal as having paired, uh, paired normal uh, specimen to, to uh, evaluate it with. Sensitivity is maybe slightly better than MMR-IHC. We often see these two assays paired together in practice. The other strategy, of course, is next-generation sequencing. Um, this can also be performed in a tumor-only mode, so you don't need a paired uh, normal specimen necessarily. The benefit of doing MSI, PC, MSI testing by NGS um, is that it's part of a panel that's, in, that's querying a bunch of other biomarkers as well. So you're going to be able to get your KRAS and BRAF status, et cetera, um, as well as the, the MMR status. Um, it may actually have import, improved performance for NGS detection in certain tumor types, particularly outside of the colon cancer space. Um, and uh, the sensitivity it may actually be superior to that of MMR, IHC, or uh, PCR. Now, all that said, it is a relatively new test, so I think there are still going to be growing pains around introduction of, of NGS, and we'll talk a little bit about how that's incorporated into the, the CAP guidelines in a second. Just some very classic pictures of an intact mismatch repair IHC, and then an example of a patient who has MLH deficiency with paired PMS2 uh, deficiency as well. Okay, so here are the guidelines that were published in 2022. So there are strong recommendations to be testing patients with colon, colorectal cancer, either with MMR-IHC or PCR. Um, those are considered to be preferred, but a, a validated NGS assay uh, is acceptable as well, assuming that it shows equivalency to the other assays. For patients with GE, um, uh, upper, upper GI and small, or small bowel cancers who are being considered for immune checkpoint therapy, um, again, MMR-IHC or MSI by PCR preferred. 
over, over NGS. Um, I think here there just is much more limited evidence about the performance characteristics of NGS in this particular tumor types. Um, and the same recommendation is made for, um, uh, for endometrial cancers with the nuance that MMR-IHC is actually the preferred strategy in this particular tumor type. For other tumor types, um, the, really the jury is out. We just don't have very much uh, information about the optimal testing strategy for non-colon uh, uh, upper GI or endometrial cancers. Um, TMB is not a good surrogate for mismatch repair deficiency. There's a lot of mechanisms for hypermutation, um, and mismatch repair is only one of them, and that is its own very distinct biology. So using TMB is not an acceptable surrogate. Um, and then finally, if you identify a patient where there's a high likelihood of Lynch syndrome, this should be communicated to the treating physician. Um, we're going to go ahead and focus now on tumor mutational burden uh, in the last couple of minutes. So what is TMB? This essentially is an assessment, a quantitative assessment of the number of mutations that are present in a tumor. And this is reflective largely of the burden of neoantigens that are present in a patient's tumor. And this is a surrogate for the likelihood of an immune response to um, those tumor cells. So TMB across tumor types is widely variable, uh, both across the tu tumor types in general and within categories of tumors. Uh, it can range from one in 10,000 per megabase of, of tumor genome to 1,000 mutations per megabase um, in the tumor genome. And you can see that spectrum of diseases um, and associated TMB in this graphic. I would note in the, the, the five that are highlighted in PEACH, these are tumors where we are routinely using immunotherapy today. So there is an association between the likelihood of generating a new antigen and uh, where we've really seen a lot of traction for immunotherapy. So how do we uh, actually test for TMB? NGS is really our only option here. The gold standard is whole exome sequencing, which is not the most clinically practicable uh, assay to, to introduce in routine, uh, in routine practice. So we're seeing the use of essentially a downsampling strategy with uh, targeted um, NGS panels that typically have several hundred genes. The benchmark should be around one megabase of overall targeted genome for analysis. Uh, much below uh, one megabase of genome, you start to see the uh, reliability of TMB calls really falling off. So TMB can vary quite a bit from lab to lab, and that's largely driven, I think, from the bioinformatics standpoint. Once you've kind of defined a, a targeted uh, region of the genome that you want to test, there's a lot of nuance that goes, on, goes into how you're making your variant calls, what is your lower, uh, level of, uh, lower level of threshold of detection of variants, um, are you subtracting out germline variants effectively, are you subtracting out artifacts effect effectively, uh, et cetera. And there can be certain rules that may dictate how you actually perform your TMB. So from lab to lab, you definitely will see variation in the tumor mutational burden, and that can happen in particular right around the FDA cut point for defining TMB high, which was based on this trial that was published in 2020, followed by an FDA uh, approval for pembrolizumab for patients who had unresectable previously treated tumors with a high TMB defined as at least 10 mutations per megabase. And that was based, again, on this particular trial. And if you look at the tumor types that were incorporated into this trial, it's a, it was a basket trial. And many of these tumor types are relatively unusual. So I think if you're dealing with kind of orphan tumors where you don't have a lot of options, high TMB looks like it can be quite uh, a useful um, a biomarker. I would call your attention to the fact that there are no 
non-small cell lung cancers, or there's very few represented here, there's very few colon cancers. A lot of the tumors that are really our, our bread and butter of practice were not well represented in this particular trial. So extrapolating utility of TMB to those tumors is, um, is somewhat limited, particularly at this particular TMB cut point. So um, there, there is fairly... Uh, robust uh, retrospective evidence that, um, that cancer-type-specific TMB can effectively predict survival after immunotherapy. This particular analysis from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Group said, well, what if we don't just say it's an absolute number of 10? What if we define kind of the highest percentile or the higher percentiles for individual tumor types and, um, and define on a tumor type specific basis a high TMB? And when you do that, you can see a very nice separation of the curves at, at both the 10% top, top sort of uh, decile for um, uh, uh, per histology and top quintile for per histology. Um, this was extended to another analysis, um, this one coming from um, a combination of the DFCI and the MSK, that essentially combined data sets and, and said, let's define a high TMB as 19, specifically here with non-small cell lung cancer patients. And again, you see a very nice separation of survival curves um, when, you, when you create a much more stringent TMB in this particular tumor type. So, so there may be certainly utility to understanding um, what, the, what kind of a high TMB is on a tumor type specific basis, um, and potentially we'll see movement towards implementing more specific cutoffs in specific tumor types. There are a number of standardization efforts around TMB, getting to that issue of interlaboratory variability. Um, and then finally, I would just point out that there's quite a bit of, of overlap, as well as sort of independence in terms of the variables that we're, um, that we're looking at here for immuno-oncology prediction. Um, so a subset of our um, MSI, uh, sorry, sorry, a subset of our TMB high patients will have MSI, a subset will have PDL1 overexpression, but none of these variables are truly interdependent. Um, and so with that, I'll pass it over to Dr. Cottrell. Thanks very much, and thanks for your attention. That was great. That was a lot of information. <laughs> So I'm excited to talk about pathologic response assessments after neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Um, I saw a lot of great questions were rolling in. Please continue to submit questions. We'll answer as many as we can uh, when I'm done speaking. And I'd also like to highlight that Peerview has an in-depth uh, educational uh, uh, video available online as well. Uh, on this topic, this will be a pretty high-level overview given our time limitations. Okay, so my take-home message is today. Neoadjuvant immunotherapy will drive a dramatic increase in the clinical demand for pathologic response assessment. A standardized pan-tumor scoring system would benefit patients and pathologists, and histologic features of tumor regression are readily identifiable and support a robust calculation of percent residual viable tumor. So here we're really focusing on surgically resectable disease and um, adjuvant therapy is probably more common, so the patient has surgery before any systemic therapy. The pathologist receives an untreated specimen for evaluation and staging. What we're talking about here is neoadjuvant immunotherapy, where the patients actually receive their systemic therapy prior to surgery, and so pathologists are receiving an on-treatment or post-treatment specimen in which they're asked not only to stage the specimen, but also to assess the effects of therapy. 
There has been a dramatic increase in the number of clinical trials that have looked at immune checkpoint blockade in the neoadjuvant setting. Um, and this is because there is a mechanistic um, explanation for why these therapies would be effective in terms of activating the immune response that is then subsequently able to circulate and survey for micrometastases following tumor resection. There have been two FDA approvals so far for neoadjuvant immunotherapy, one in triple negative breast cancer and the other in early stage non-small cell lung cancer. So the rationale for pathologic assessment of percent residual viable tumor is based on a few uh, key points. One is that there's accumulating evidence that the percentage of residual viable tumor is actually a surrogate for long-term survival. Long-term patient outcomes can then be predicted weeks or months um, in in, instead of waiting years for survival data. So when we're talking about clinical trials, this is an incredible advantage to be able to report out the results of a trial at the time of surgery rather than waiting years for survival data. And when we're talking about patient care, it's an incredible opportunity to assess whether or not the patient is going to have a good outcome at the time of surgery to make decisions about adjuvant therapy. I have a few examples uh, in different tumor types that illustrate this correlation between pathologic response and uh, long-term patient outcomes. And I'll highlight that different tumor types are right now using different scoring approaches and also different thresholds in terms of uh, their, um, the cut points that are considered response. So this is a, a study in melanoma. It's a meta-analysis across a number of different neoadjuvant therapies showing that patients who have a complete pathologic response, which is no residual tumor, or near pathologic response, which is less than or equal to 10% residual tumor, have very good outcomes. Intermediate outcomes are seen in patients who have up to 50% residual tumor, and then the worst outcomes in patients who have more than 50% residual tumor. This is a study that was done in Merkel cell carcinoma using neoadjuvant anti-PD-1. And again, here they're only looking at complete pathologic response and find that patients who have uh, that are doing much better long-term than patients who do not have a complete pathologic response. So here the only metric is whether or not there is residual tumor present uh, at the time of surgery. And then this is actually a... Uh, analysis that was done on the Checkmate 816 study of neoadjuvant chemo plus immunotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer. And it's looking at residual viable tumor as a continuous variable. So rather than choosing complete pathologic response or major pathologic response, uh, we're actually looking at residual viable tumor in 10% increments. And what you can see is that there's a very nice correlation between the percentage of residual tumor and outcomes of patients across this spectrum. Uh, what's important to know is that we don't really have the data to know what the most relevant cut points are with regard to neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And so that really um, makes it important for us to standardize how we are assessing pathologic response and reporting the data so that we're able to do the meta-analyses necessary to actually determine which cut points are most relevant for patient outcomes. So uh, moving on to a standardized pan-tumor scoring system will benefit patients and pathologists. So there are several benefits to a pan-tumor scoring system for pathologic response. It'll allow for more direct comparisons across different trials and even different tumor types. Uh, it provides a, a ready-to-go system for use in new tumor types or in new treatment combinations. 
And it also avoids issues with having different scoring systems in clinical trials where the data is then um, not comparable. And so we all experience this with PDL1 immunohistochemistry. And the goal is to not repeat that when it comes to pathologic response assessment. So um, getting into the weeds a little bit on pathologic response assessment, the residual viable tumor is calculated as the amount of viable tumor as a function of the total tumor bed, with the tumor bed being where the tumor was originally prior to therapy. And I'll note that the nuance in pathologic response assessment is really not with assessing viable tumor. Pathologists are very good at that. The nuance is really assessing the tumor bed. Can we tell where the tumor used to be? Can we actually assess how much of the tumor has, has regressed in response to therapy? And then on the bottom, I just note some of the common comp points, including complete pathologic response, which many people believe is, is the easiest cut point to use for clinical trials, but may actually result in overtreatment of patients who would otherwise have good outcomes. And then things like major pathologic response or near complete pathologic response, um, and then partial pathologic response. And again, these, um, these cut points don't necessarily have the data available in the context of neoadjuvant immunotherapy to really know uh, which is the best. So there have been a proliferation of different approaches to scoring pathologic response and different cut points used in clinical trials, not only across different tumor types, but even within a single tumor type, there are different recommendations. And so, um, you know, this creates a, a lot of challenges for the people who are designing clinical trials and, of course, creates challenges for those in clinical practice who are trying to assess these specimens. Again, just sort of going back to the idea of PDL1 testing, we know that the use of different assays and different cut points and different scoring systems really has complicated the transition of PDL1 testing into clinical practice, and this is what we're trying to avoid with pathological response assessments. So there are a number of different approaches currently um, being used to assess pathologic response. I mentioned that um, in some tumor types, only complete pathologic response is considered. So in breast cancer, for example, they're really looking for whether or not there's residual tumor, and that's, that's the extent. Um, the IASLC recommendations for non-small cell lung cancer recommend that the tumor bed area is actually divided into viable tumor, stroma, and necrosis. And so the residual viable tumor is calculated as the amount of viable tumor epithelium divided by the total tumor bed area. And there are advantages and disadvantages to this approach. So an advantage would be that in a specimen that has a lot of fibrosis and inflammation, but it's unclear whether or not it was native or treatment effect, you don't really have to make that distinction using this approach. One of the downsides might be that if you have a tumor that ha is very fibrotic and has low cellularity, you may actually be overestimating response to therapy. So another approach is to actually distinguish the features of response, and this is the foundation for the pantumor approach to assessing pathologic response. So this is really based on a systematic analysis of pretreatment biopsies, as well as on-treatment specimens in non-small cell lung cancer, and also comparing responders and non-responders to identify what the features are of pathologic response following neoadjuvant anti-PD-1. And what's shown in the H&E image is actually the viable tumor outlined in blue, surrounded by this area of very dense cellularity that's composed of lymphocytes and macrophages, and that's really the area where the tumor used to be and has subsequently regressed. 
The regression is really characterized by a constellation of features. So we see evidence of immune activation, tumor cell deaths, and tissue repair. And I've highlighted some of the specific histologic features of each of these. And it's important to note that um, no single feature is um, indicative of treatment response. And as with most things in pathology, we're looking for a pattern um, that has both a certain quality in terms of representing multiple of these features, as well as a spatial relationship to the tumor that's helpful in determining whether or not a stroma might be from tumor regression or might be native tumor stroma. So uh, this pan-tumor approach to pathologic response assessment, which is also known as the immune-related pathologic response criteria, was prospectively validated in the Checkmate 816 clinical trial that's led to FDA approval of neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 plus chemotherapy. And I, I showed you the, the graph on the left before, which is um, looking at event-free survival as a function of residual viable tumor. Uh, when these specimens were scored, we also noted the percentage of tumor regression in 10% increments, and you can see that the percent regression actually performs just as well, if not a little bit better, than residual viable tumor in predicting two-year outcomes. And so what this data really tells us is that pathologists are capable of distinguishing between intratumoral stroma that has nothing to do with the treatment effect and tumor regression, which is inversely correlated with residual tumor and um, positively correlated with patient outcomes. So this work has been extended to a number of different tumor types. This specific analysis looks at over 500 untreatment specimens across 10 different tumor types and really found that the features of pathologic response following neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 therapies were consistent regardless of the tumor type or the site of disease. And it also showed very high interreader agreement. So we've seen that pathologists are able to reproducibly assess response at 10% increments using this approach. So finally, um, getting into the details of the identifying pathologic response. Again, I'm showing uh, micrographs of the, some of the features that really constitute this constellation of uh, massive cell death, generating a lot of membrane lipid that give you cholesterol clefts and interstitial foamy macrophages, cellular fibrosis, lymphoid aggregates, neovascularization, and a very dense lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, which is not surprising in the context of an immune-activating therapy. Uh, here are some images illustrating that these features are consistent across different sites of disease, so head and neck carcinoma, Merkel cell, vulvar, cervical, and renal cell carcinoma. And you can see that many of the features are the same across these tumor types. And actually, this approach has been used to assess pathologic response in clinical trials uh, across these different tumor types. And then finally, um, looking at different treatment modalities. So we know that we're um, moving into a phase where we're doing combination therapy that includes anti-PD-1 and, and other immune checkpoints. And you can see that combinations with immunotherapy and chemotherapy or chemoradiation or combination immunotherapy with targeting PD-1 and, and CTLA-4 all sort of generate a very similar pattern. And again, the Checkmate 816 trial was actually um, immunotherapy plus chemotherapy. So again, we've seen uh, published clinical trials using the, this approach for pathologic response assessment across a variety of different therapy strategies, um, and so really supporting that this is a viable approach. And then finally, uh, an interesting area that 
I think deserves more attention is assessing pathologic response in lymph nodes. So we know that, you know, most often it's going to be the metastatic deposits in lymph nodes that really determine patient outcomes. And so we can actually measure response to tumors in the lymph nodes as well. Uh, so you're seeing a residual tumor on the right boxed in blue and, uh, features of regression in boxed in green, and then you can contrast that with, with a, a features of a normal lymph node, which are, are at the far edge there. So again, neoadjuvant immunotherapy is going to drive uh, the need for obsessing pathologic response across tumor types, across treatment types. Um, this will be coming into clinical practice. A standardized approach will make the lives of pathologists easier and also improve patient care because we're able to assess larger amounts of data to, to make informed decisions about adjuvant therapy as well as meaningful cut points for clinical trials. And we can use these readily identifiable features of response to uh, robustly assess not only residual tumor but also uh, the regression. Uh, okay, so now we will uh, answer some of your great questions. Yeah, th thank you. Uh, thank you for submitting um, a large number of questions. Maybe I'll start with addressing some of the questions from the first half and let folks continue to put their questions in from the second half of the talk. Um, so going back to PDL1 uh, immunohistic chemistry, one question came in about different performances across different antibodies in terms of signal intensity. This is absolutely the case. We do see quite a bit of variable expression with uh, use of different antibodies, and of course that extends to the use of the, the platform that's, that's used as well. Some of that variation may be ascribed to the locations on the protein where the antibodies are actually binding. Some of the antibodies are very sensitive to the, the pre-analytics or the um, antigen um, um, uh, retrieval techniques and the, the pH uh, in which the IHC is being performed. So these are all really critical factors to keep in mind, and it points to the need for really robust validation of whichever antibody you're using. Um, we have found, and many of the studies have found in general, that there's relatively good comparability between, say, the um, 22C3 antibody, which is part of the CDX for pembrolizumab, with um, the SP263 clone, um, and as well as the LDTE1, L3N. So those are often considered to be relatively interchangeable, as well as with the 288 antibody, which has been paired with nivolumab. We're starting to see um, a recognition that, as, as Trisha nicely pointed out, the sort of morass of PDL1 IHC um, stains with different indications and different assays, it's all very confusing. We, we are sort of starting to see um, some of the, the drugs that are just coming to market now actually employing the same assays as had been uh, approved for prior drugs. So there is sort of a recognition that trying to uh, arrive at some relatively standardized strategy for staining is really going to be important. Um, is it necessary to recheck PDL1 again um, after treatment? Um, so I would say that um, it really depends on what the um, what is the indication for doing the staining. So if you're um, if if a patient has progressed on PDL1 uh, or PD1 targeted therapies, they're going to have to move. They're probably going to have to be moving to a different strategy for therapy. And assessing the PDL1 expression level at that point is really not clinically relevant. 
Um, if you're talking about a patient who maybe had uh, chemotherapy alone without immunotherapy, it, yeah, it might be warranted to check the PDL1 again before proceeding with um, a decision on the type of, of therapy that the patient should receive next. Um, I would say that this is a conversation to have in, uh, in partnership with your clinician who's trying to make a decision about the right type of therapy um, in, the next, uh, in the next line. Um, there's, a, there's a question around TMB and MMR. Um, uh, looks like it's based on NGS analysis where mutations were detected. So, uh, you know, maybe a KRAS or a BRAF mutation was detected, but the TMB and MMR statuses came back as could not be determined. I, it's hard to comment exactly on why this happens, but there's a lot of variables that may go into an individual laboratory's confidence in actually calling these uh, particular variables. So, for instance, if there's a very low tumor content in the specimen that's being sequenced and the, um, the, the variants that you're able to see are present at a very low level, you just may not have enough solid evidence to actually calculate something like the TMB or actually see enough of the genome to be able to call a, a mismatch repair status. Um, can be, uh, sorry, can MMR testing be done on superficial biopsies with no invasive component and containing adenoma? It's a great question, right? Sometimes that's all you have. Um, so I would say that if you test an adenoma that's a, so, so, you know, theoretically supposed to be the precursor lesion for an invasive adenocarcinoma of the colon, for instance, and you find mismatch repair deficiency in that adenoma, in all likelihood, there will also be mismatch repair deficiency in the invasive carcinoma, assuming that it's the same clone. Keep in mind that you can have an adenoma colliding with an invasive carcinoma that's a completely independent process. So I would say in general, it's nice to test the thing you want to treat. So if you can get a sample of the invasive carcinoma that is the target of therapy, that's really what you want to be treating. But recognizing that there can be scenarios where you've leveled through the invasive compartment, all you have is the adenomatous epithelium at the top, Again, if it's mismatch repair deficient, it probably points to the, the invasive component being mismatch, mismatch repair deficient as well. The opposite doesn't necessarily hold, however. We do have cases where you maybe see an intact superficial component, intact um, adenomatous component, and then you see the mismatch repair deficiency actually taking hold in the invasive component. So um, you have to be very careful in interpreting those cases. Um, let's see. Uh, reporting method for MMR IHC. Uh, in our practice, it's very binary. So it's either lost or it's intact. There are the scenarios where you will get a little bit more kind of intermixed, weird loss in individual cells. That's usually technical artifact. So when there's partial loss, it tends to be very geographic. So you'll see intact tumor, and then in one corner, you see very discrete region of loss. And that's, that's a descriptive comment. So you'll, you, you could say lost in a minor subset of the tumor cells or say X percentage of the tumor cells in a geographic distribution. That would point to really the evolution, of, in all likelihood, the evolution of mismatch repair deficiency in a subclone within that tumor. And that's something that we can see uh, biologically. Um, what does it mean in terms of response? I think the jury might still be out. It's an unusual phenomenon. Um, it probably warrants consideration of immunotherapy in that context because there's going to be at least one subclone that's likely to respond. Um, is there data comparing MMR deficiencies as a surrogate for PDL1 tumors? No, there's not. Um, I think Tricia. Why don't we kick it over to you? We've got a couple questions. Sure. Thank you. Um, 
So uh, there's a question, a couple questions about how to sample tumors for pathologic response assessment. So, you know, the IASLC recommendations for lung cancer recommend submitting the entire tumor if it's, I believe, up to three centimeters. And then after that, um, submitting a complete cross-section of the tumor. And uh, I think an important component of the grossing for pathologic response assessment is actually mapping where the blocks are um, so that you know when you're looking at a slide where it came from in the specimen. So, for example, in lung cancer, I've seen cases where there's a tumor that did not respond to therapy at all. There's an adjacent obstructive pneumonia. So that obstructive pneumonia has inflammation and fibrosis, and it could easily be misinterpreted as a response. But when you sort of have that geographic relationship and can see that, you know, in the blocks that, that contained, you know, that are sort of containing tumor, there's no evidence of response. And then separately, there's this inflammation and fibrosis that um, is likely an obstructive pneumonia. You can sort of see that geographic separation that can be really helpful. Um, my understanding is that there are very similar recommendations in breast cancer. So I, I think, you know, more sampling is certainly better if you submit a complete cross-section and you don't see any tumor. It's pretty common practice to go back and submit more just to make sure you're not missing a small amount of residual tumor. Um, so the, there's a question about lymph nodes. Do, do we recommend calculating residual viable tumor in lymph nodes or just reporting the presence or absence of, of tumor and treatment effect? I think right now we don't have the data to really support um, measuring residual viable tumor in lymph nodes in clinical practice. I do think we're heading in that direction and I hope that one day we will be doing that. Um, but I think it's, it's still uh, early days. I personally would note whether or not I see viable tumor and whether or not I see treatment effect in the lymph nodes. Um, and you can obviously also have, you know, different patterns in different nodes. Uh, so I think there's a lot of complexity there that we still need to work out before that transitions into a standardized clinical approach. Um, what are, oh, sorry. What are the features of response that distinguish um, fibrosis from, from uh, non-response? So, uh, you know, I think this is certainly a space where good training materials will go a long way. I think once, pe once people see these specimens, it's, it's pretty clear, but there are a constellation of features. So, you know, most importantly, right, we're looking for the tumor to be killed by the immune system. So if there is viable tumor everywhere, it's not response, right? So, I mean, at some level, it's actually not that complicated. Um, what we commonly have seen in lung cancer is actually kind of this outside-in pattern of tumor regression that we didn't necessarily expect. So I often look at the interface between the tumor and the normal tissue, and it's there where I'm most likely to see evidence of tumor regression. If the tumor goes all the way up to the border of, um, of the normal lung, most cases that, that specimen has no evidence of response. So even in the setting of a lot of inflammation within the tumor stroma, if there's viable tumor um, throughout, then, then that's, that misses that element of tumor cell death. And so, so that would not be considered response. Um, I'd also like to note that um, SIDSI is developing great, great material for um, tutorials on, on how to assess pathologic response. So that, that will be available. Um, there's a great question about bladder cancer noting that it's difficult to evaluate changes from previous surgery versus changes from immunotherapy. Uh, this is 
This is a great question. It's kind of a unique situation in bladder cancer where you're going back and resampling um, the same area. So I, I think it's kind of a, a, a specific challenge that I don't have a great solution for. Of course, in bladder cancer with BCG, you know, many would argue that they've been using immunotherapy much longer than anyone else. I think um, for me, I would want to see uh, you know, that's a very fragmented specimen, which also makes assessment of pathologic response challenging. So, you know, I mentioned that we like to have block mapping. We like to know the spatial relationship between the different slides that we're looking at. That's not possible in bladder cancer where you're just getting a bunch of fragmented tissue. So I think there are inherent limitations in that setting. Um, how to distinguish native fibroelastosis from regression. So again, uh, you know, a tumor can be very elastotic, and if that tumor regresses, that elastosis may remain in the tumor bed. So I think we're really looking for the presence of evidence of cell death, evidence of inflammation, fibrosis, in conjunction with, with the tumor being gone. So it, it's actually, the tumor will regress and those other features will be there, and that, and that defines a, this area of tumor bed that no longer has viable tumor and has these other features of regression. So if you're looking within, you know, between a bunch of tumor islands, like, it's probably not regression, it's probably native stroma. Um, is there an AI that can accurately assess residual viable tumor? This is a very hot topic, and um, my colleague Julie Stein at Johns Hopkins has made some great progress. I think she reported uh, some of her data. I can't remember at which meeting recently, but yes, this is, uh, this is definitely an area that's understood that pathologists don't want to spend a lot of time uh, assessing pathologic response in these, in these specimens. It is uh, time-consuming, and so I am optimistic that AI will be able to help us on that. Um, let me see. Did you have any more questions? Can I actually ask you a question, Tricia? Sure. What do you think that optimal time window is following immunotherapy to actually capture those features of immune regression? Like, if we wait too long, does it just look like any other treatment bed? I think that's a great question. Um, so, you know, in the lung cancer trials, we're doing shorter courses of therapy. And so we're seeing a lot more of that inflammation and that sort of active response. Um, but there are other tumor types where, you know, in breast cancer, for example, where they do much longer courses of therapy, and then you end up with a much more fibrotic looking tumor bed. Um, so I think there will have to be consideration made in terms of the, the timing of the therapy when you're considering whether or not the tumor has regressed. Um, but I, I would also go back to the idea that, so when the tumor regresses, it's not going to become obviously normal lung or normal breast tissue, right? So there's going to be some evidence that there was pathology there. And then you're also going to have obviously evidence of whether or not there's still tumor. So I think in these different time courses, it's still measurable, but I agree with your point that the features would, would evolve. Yeah. I think one of the challenges that people face, historically face, is just how much tissue to put in when you're dealing with a, a response assessment. Um, we've, we've kind of solidified this, I think, in um, lung cancer by recommending um, at least uh, submission of an entire cross-section of the tumor. If it's a large tumor bed, 
getting one central cross-section, mapping that out and submitting the entire thing with that map in hand so that if there's areas where there's cavitation, necrosis that kind of dissolves in the course of processing, you can kind of map it all back together. For smaller tumors, so less than three centimeters in the lung, we'd recommend just submitting the entirety uh, for evaluation, keeping in mind that it's always a very, like really minimal sampling, right? Because we're never going to be we're never going to be cutting through the entire block and evaluating the entire uh, the entire uh, area of a, of a tumor. So um, we just have to like grapple with the fact that we're always just doing we're always sampling. We're never really getting a full assessment of the tumor um, when we're thinking about is this a complete pathologic response? But those have been our our general um, um, strategies. And I don't, Trisha, I don't know if you'd want to con uh, discuss what what has kind of been recommended in other. Um, tumor types in terms of grossing where it's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. So <laughs> I only do lung as well, so I apologize that we have a limited <laughs> scope of expertise here. Um, I, I, did, I trained it not that long ago, but um, yeah, I know obviously the breast cancer community has been the real leaders in neoadjuvant therapy, and they're very um, methodical about how they process their specimens and in terms of submitting and mapping. Uh, and I think as this treatment approach expands to other tumor types, there's going to be a similar demand for that kind of rigor. So I, I think it's important. Okay. Um, the last comment that I, that I saw that I hadn't addressed was one on terminology complete pathologic response, major pathologic response, near complete pathologic response. I agree that. Uh, that this is confusing and you know i think this is one of the spaces where we have a lot of room to make improvements and just be really clear and specific about how we are again measuring these things and also reporting them um, to make it understandable for uh, not only the pathologist but also the oncologist looking at the reports uh, all right that's our time yeah thanks thanks everybody this activity is certified by pvi Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GNU860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Merck & Company, Incorporated.